0: Welcome to another episode of the All Thoughts Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway.
1: And I'm Joe Weisenthal.
0: So Joe, we had a pretty uh, eventful week in markets recently.
1: Yeah, pretty extraordinary start to the week, or really, or I should say the start to 2020. Uh, The first trading day of the year was really strong, and then almost immediately... Thereafter, we got the news about the Iranian general being killed. And suddenly that has been the focus of markets in 2020, the uh, repercussions of such.
0: So the Trump administration killed Iran's top general, Qasem Soleimani, and then uh, that knocked markets immediately. But then a few days later, you had Iran retaliating against that killing by firing a, a series of missiles at U.S. Iraqi air bases in iraq and that caused yet another sell-off i think at one point u.s equity futures were down something like 1.7 percent and we saw gold spike up yeah. to uh 1600 per ounce but did anyone ever stop to ask what was going on with iranian stocks at that same time
1: i certainly did not stop to ask that question and i did not uh think about it for various reasons which we'll get into. One point that uh, I we should just make before moving on is that part of what's been interesting about U.S. markets has been the degree of resilience. So even with all these headlines that totally caught people uh, by surprise and we have markets near record highs, the volatility and the headlines haven't driven domestic uh, U.S. markets sustainably lower. In fact, uh, as of this moment, they're basically at all-time highs, yet again, quite surprising to some. But you are totally right that there has been much less focus on regional uh, stock markets, including the Tehran Stock Exchange, which exists, but which gets virtually zero discussion.
0: Well, I'm being somewhat facetious because I think everyone knows why we don't talk about Iranian stocks that much. And that's because of U.S. sanctions, of course, and the fact that that particular market and economy uh, and country really is cut off from large parts of the world. But there is a Tehran stock exchange. uh, There is a stock market. And I think it would be really, really interesting to find out exactly what happened in that market over the past week or so, and also just find out generally how it works. Not only do you have geopolitical risk, but you also have these really stringent sanctions
1: yeah no i i've you know i'm I'm aware of the market exists, but I don't know anything about it. I don't know who can invest in it. I don't know how liquid it is. I don't know how much retail participation or what are the big companies? I literally know nothing about the Tehran Stock Exchange. <laughs> All
0: right. Uh, well, let's find out. We have the uh, the perfect guest to walk us through it. It's Mache Wojtal, uh, who runs the only European asset manager focused on Iranian stocks, a company called Amtalan Capital. Mache, thank you so much for coming on.
2: Hi. Thank you for having me.
0: So I, I guess the obvious question to start out with is, How did you end up in this space? Because I don't think your name sounds very Iranian.
2: Oh, no. Maciej Mm -hmm. is a typical Polish name. So um, I'm from Poland, Um, um, uh, raised in Warsaw, Uh, moved to London uh, when I got my first job in J.P. Morgan, and uh, I've been there ever since. And I had zero connection to Iran. So what caught my attention is obviously the... um, Iran deal that was signed in 2015 and implemented in 2016. I also was just aware that uh, there is a stock market in Iran because we used to run global equity long-short portfolios across developed and emerging markets, so including places like Kenya, Vietnam, China, Asia, a lot of different like, niche markets. And Iran was always there as something potentially interested, interesting. No one did anything, and then when in 2016 the country opened up for well pretty much everyone except for um, U.S. investors, I got interested. I did some research. I realized that there is a proper stock market, and this is what got me really excited because you know there is this huge potential growth story for Iran as a country of you know 83 million people, educated young population with uh, wages right now lower than in Vietnam, Hmm. with, you know, diversified economy, with the largest oil and gas reserves in the world, but this is only 15% of GDP. You know, it's a good thing about being under sanctions for so long that they had to develop all the different sectors of the economy. But then for me, um, as a portfolio investor, what was exciting is that there is a stock market with 600 stocks listed, $130 billion market cap, and daily liquidity of roughly $150 million per day on average. Um, so it's a proper market. And the best thing is, was that um, you had the lowest valuations in the world. We're talking about, you know, four times earnings, and those earnings are growing. And there are no foreign investors. So all foreign money that got invested there was less than half a percent of the market cap. Wow. So, you know, when I, when I, when I saw all this, I, I just told my wife basically that I... Bought a ticket to Tehran. I didn't know anyone there, so I uh, just arranged a couple of meetings with the local brokers. Went there, you know, opened accounts for myself, tested everything with my own money. Uh, it worked, so I decided to set up a fund that would be focused on this particular opportunity.
1: So let's talk about the restrictions on who can invest. You're based in London. Anyone in Europe is. Uh, allowed under current sanctions regimes to invest, but I take it in the U.S. it's completely off-limits?
2: So you have two most important types of sanctions. Um, Primary sanctions that say that U.S. persons cannot touch Iran. We cannot accept investments from U.S. investors. We, as a fund, cannot use U.S. dollar uh, or U.S. banks. And then you have secondary sanctions, which say that no one else, should do business with a long list of certain entities both individual and um, corporate entities that are on the SDN is on the sanctions list and also there is a list of sectors or activities that you shouldn't be doing, like, you know, physical trading in oil, obviously. So, you know, a big part of our job is due diligence, actually. And we have, you know, we have a special, you know, Washington-based sanctions lawyer that is um, telling us what we can do, what we cannot do. There is a lot of work. Investing in Iran is actually, before you actually get to invest, you have to do a lot of legal work. And then investing itself is is actually easy.
0: So who does your typical client, End up being like. Can you give us a sense of who they are, but also what are they looking for out of the market? Is it you know is it a steady stream of dividends? Because capital appreciation seems kind of difficult when you're cut off from a big chunk of the amount of capital in in the global economy.
2: That will be surprising to hear, but this is actually the best performing equity market of two thousand nine uh, mm-hmm. nineteen. Sorry, in in dollar terms. So last year the main index of Tehran's stock exchange doubled or precisely went up by 99.5% wow. in dollar terms and when you check Bloomberg for example for the you know you sort all the indices uh, by the performance you don't see it because it's not in your database but but yeah that's uh, but that's, that's that's the reality so it's actually the best performing equity market that no one knows about so you are looking for capital gains absolutely there
0: so who are the clients then that, that are that are interested in the space? So I get the return, but you still have to have this conversation about investing in what a lot of people would consider a relatively risky market.
2: Oh, yes, absolutely. So first of all, um, all the investors uh, that we have are high net worth individuals from across Europe. It's too early for institutions to uh, to get into the market. And all of these investors are very aware that you know, it's, it's, it's not a relatively risky market. It's a very risky market. I mean, investment risks are actually quite limited. I mean, when you're buying assets at four times net earnings and those earnings are growing in you know, high double digits every year, investment risks are low. But you have geopolitical risks. I mean, it's not only Iran, it's, it's the whole Middle East but you are getting paid a lot to take those risks. I mean, even if you invest in, in local treasury bills, I mean, right now these are on, on, sang, on the sanctions list, so you wouldn't be able to, but local investors get paid uh, 22% on short-term government bills. Wow. You have dividend yields of, you know, between 10 and 20%. So you, you can very often find companies like utility companies that pay you 20% dividend yields. But the biggest opportunity is in the companies that grow their earnings. So all of the last year's rally, which was super counterintuitive because, you know, it was in such a big contrast to the headlines that you, uh, you know, kept on receiving about Iran, about the GDP, about, you know, oil um, exports going down. But oil is not listed. I mean, you have a couple of refineries listed, but oil exploration is not listed. What is interesting are, first of all, exporters and mainly regional exporters. So when you look at Iran, it's 83 million people, but Iran plus neighboring countries is 400 million people. And Iran is well-placed to export to those countries. For example, countries like, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan, they have 70, 80 million people and don't produce much. So they have to import a lot of the stuff that they consume and they do it very often from Iran. So this is one thing. But actually the biggest beneficiaries last year of sanctions and of the currency depreciation that happened the year before were domestic companies. Why? Because after Iranian rial, so the local currency, went down in 2018 by 70%, and then additional sanctions made trade even more difficult. So, you know, it was difficult to process payments, to find, you know, shipping, so the logistics were difficult, insurance, and so on. So imports collapsed. And whatever, you know, cheap products were being imported from China, they were no longer competitive. And it was more difficult to get them to Iran anyway. So local producers started gaining market share. And we could see that both, you know, volumes were going out for the local companies, and they were able to raise prices faster than the inflation. So actually, the domestic companies, and, I'm, and I'm, when, I, when I'm speaking about domestic companies, it's, uh, uh, you know, our best, positions uh, best performing positions were you know a shampoo maker and um mm. chocolate biscuits producer and those were the types of companies that gained the most and this is not exactly the type of investment that that you're thinking about when you when you, you know go to invest in iran
1: god I, I already i have so many questions just listening to that i'm already so fascinated one thing that I'm always sort of interested in when people invest in sort of extreme emerging frontier type markets that are well out of the mainstream is data quality. So first of all, as you notice, like I can't even pull up a uh, Tehran stock exchange quote on uh, on my Bloomberg. From your perspective, from your seat in London, how confident and how difficult is it? To get uh, transparent data on both sort of trading volume, the exchange, and companies themselves, to the point where you can like feel confident that you have a good handle on who's doing what and how well.
2: Yeah, so uh, that's that's a very important point, and I was really surprised when I started looking at the local data. So Bloomberg obviously doesn't cover it. So so I no longer have a Bloomberg terminal on my desk. Um, but I have like a local, um, and not a Bloomberg equivalent, but databases hmm. in English that w- w- where I have quarterly financial data for the last 20 years for 400 biggest stocks, plus obviously all the price uh, data, everything in English in a, you know, b- b- easy to use format, let's say, maybe not similar to Bloomberg, but this direction.
0: Is that the Iranian... Domestic competitor to Bloomberg.
2: <laughs> That's uh, um, uh, too much to say, I guess. But um, <laughs> um, they would love to hear that. Yes. <laughs> what's it called? Oh, what's it called? It's called um, um, it's called
1: View. Okay, I'll have to Google that later. Yeah.
2: So, so, so this is one good source, and then, but in terms of the quality of the data itself, companies have to report audited quarterly and annual reports just as they are reporting in Europe or the US. They have uh, local accounting standards, but they are moving toward international um, um, financial reporting standards, and the local ones are um, easy to read anyway. But there are two interesting things here. So first of all, okay, you may see the, um, the data, the numbers, but at the back of your head, you, 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 you have to remember that maybe you should not be trusting all the numbers that you're looking at, right? And I, I did invest in China a lot, in you know, Chinese companies listed in Shanghai. Even worse were Chinese companies listed in Singapore, and, 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 and so a lot of fraud. So, so, so I was quite cautious here. But look, imagine that a company is showing you, these were our sales last uh, year, This was our net earnings and our payout ratio is 90%. So we're going to pay out most of our net earnings, almost all of our net earnings as dividend. And then you're getting this dividend, receiving this dividend into your account. So, you know, this is something real, right? So you can no longer question whether the net earnings figure was, was right or wrong because you actually received most of it as dividend. And and, and most companies have very high dividend yields and, and um, uh, payout ratios. So this validates the data. Moreover, what I get there is something is actually something that I don't get in other markets, which is monthly sales data. So all the big and uh, medium-sized companies are required to report on a monthly basis, revenue across their main product categories and split into volumes and unit prices, which is a lot of data that you can analyze. And, and, and after two months, you pretty much know what to expect from the next quarterly earnings. And the best thing is that not many people are doing this this work in Iran. Why? Because, you know, almost all the local investors are retail investors. China, A shares, or Vietnam before funds started investing there. have Literally almost all of the local investors are non-sophisticated retail investors. So everyone is pretty much, you know, short-term momentum, right? Without trying to analyze stuff, try to forecast any numbers. So what we are doing is actually, you know, pretty simple work. I mean, we're just doing our work, uh, building models, uh, analyzing hundreds of data per month uh, for most of the companies. And it's great because for a professional investor, you know, you do your work and you get rewarded.
0: So, I mean, one of the big differences between being a domestic retail investor versus, you know, a sophisticated international investor is the currency conversion. How big a factor is that for you when it comes to your investment strategy? And how difficult is it to get money from Iran converted into other currencies and other accounts outside of Iran?
2: Yeah. So... uh... Exchanging money is not an issue. There is, maybe right now it's better, but over the last previous two years, there was a bit of a chaos with the um, exchange rates. So you had, you know, three different exchange rates that uh, were making you know, even the locals got confused in terms of which one to use and which one they they should be using to value investments and so on. So um, um, you have the official rate, which basically no one is using because this is a subsidized rate to import certain pharmaceutical and agricultural goods. Then you have the Nima platform rate which is where all the exporters and importers are required to exchange their currency and this is where the biggest liquidity is and then you have the bazaar rate where all the individual Iranians without any limits they can they can just trade usually you know physical dollar bills right on the bazaar which which is super volatile not very liquid so whenever there is like a panic which we saw many times uh, over the previous year and, uh, you know they were rushing to the bazaar to buy you know physical dollar bills and um, uh, and hide them under the mattress so right now because after 2018 when the currency dropped by 70 percent 2019 was stable and of the currency stable in terms of actually got better in terms of economic activity because uncertainty related to US sanctions uh, went down and this started feeding into the company's earnings hence the bull market in Iran but um, so, so trading currency and all, all the exchange rates I mean the Nima rate and the bazaar rate converged so right now there is not much issue in terms of exchanging, buying, selling hard currency. The biggest problem is always transferring money because there is a very short list of banks that are still connected to you know Iranian banks via swift not all Iranian banks are on the um, sdn list there there is a couple of privately owned banks that have nothing to do with sanctions i mean they are part of the financial system which is uh, which is under sanctions but but them as um, entities they, they they are okay but the list of you know foreign banks western banks that are happy to 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 deal with them is is very very short and these are usually small uh, independent banks
1: Do you ever worry about some risk in the future that there's some eventuality that your money could just get completely stuck in iran that there could become a point in which there's no banks in the west or in europe that you have access to that are willing to take uh money or take uh transfers from an iranian bank
2: look uh, think about 2015 so before iran deal was um, implemented financial system was completely cut off i mean no one was dealing with iranian banks and yet there was 80 billion dollars per year of trade between iran and other countries so you know money will always find its way and how this was done is you know you had hundreds or i don't know maybe thousands big number of intermediaries that act as you know, market makers between those that want to move money in, move money out. And this has been actually, you know, working in the um, Middle East um, region, in the Arab world for, uh, you know, actually for centuries. So banks may be cut off, but, but it usually finds the way. Another thing is that in general, sanctions used to be more, effective some time ago, like 10 years ago, up to 10 years ago, or up to five years ago. What I'm seeing right now, uh, especially on the um, smaller transaction levels, and many countries are embracing it, is that people use more and more often cryptocurrencies to, to transfer money because it's cheap and it's fast and it's, it doesn't have any you know, institutional problems. I think it would be actually for all the let's say troubled countries from Iran to Venezuela and so on to 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 embrace it they obviously would still like to control it which is not that easy so so they are a bit um, puzzled in terms of what to do but Iran actually legalized uh, bitcoin mining recently so maybe maybe they are going this way
1: another question that i always have relating to markets like these And honestly, even in more sophisticated, very developed financial markets, like if you hear people talk about, say, the Hong Kong market, where Tracy is, they'll be like, oh, yeah, it's rife with, you know, related party transaction and insider dealing. And you have to be extremely careful. Talk to us about corporate governance within uh, publicly listed uh, Iranian companies. How confident do you feel that they're well-run, that they're not just run for the benefit of insiders? And does this sort of speak to, again, the salience of the um, payout ratio metric when you're analyzing companies in this market? Basically, you have to judge to see that the earnings actually make their way back to shareholders
2: tricky because when you call the company you want to get more information for example so we usually call the CFO when we want to understand more about the um, I don't know balance sheet or about the operations sometimes they're just not interested in speaking with you so the idea of you know valuing the um, financial investors as shareholders it's, it's really not clear for them so so here it's you don't get good responses from them very often. You don't get good investor relations service. In terms of, you know, corporate governments, whether all the money goes back to you know to all the shareholders or gets diverted to friends and family or whoever, well, you have to look at earnings and the payout ratio. And then if those earnings are real earnings but could be even higher But they are not because, you know, some of the costs were actually friends and family or whoever. But then I'm still paying four times for those earnings, for those smaller earnings that they should be. Well. I don't know. It could be possible, but I guess I'm still fine with it because it's four times those smaller earnings. So there is even um, upside to this one, right? Maybe it should be three times the real earnings and the you know, situation could improve. So so I'm, I'm definitely looking at valuation and, and, and payout ratio. So understanding what's happening to this uh, money that the company is producing.
0: So... I want to get to recent events and the escalation in tensions between the US and Iran, which uh, Joe and I mentioned earlier. What was it actually like trading the market during that time? And how did the market actually react? And I genuinely don't know the answer to this, because as you mentioned, uh, the Tehran Stock Exchange data is not on the Bloomberg terminal. Uh, We do have regional data for all the other major Middle East indices. And so I can judge from that that Iran was probably hard hit. But I'm, I'm really curious to hear your perspective about what exactly happened.
2: Yes. So first of all, we didn't do any trading. Uh, so we were just observing the market. On the first day after the um, killing of Soleimani, the market went limit down, which is minus 5%. So almost all of the stocks went limit down so people panicked obviously but uh, w- what was interesting is uh, the information that half of the selling came from investors who got their trading license which means that they opened their first brokerage account within the last nine months so this um, iranian year so very unexperienced uh, investors who are new to the market. The next day, uh, some of the local institutional investors that are in the market started buying uh, mainly the biggest exporters, and the market went still down, but it was something like minus, minus 1.5, minus 2, depending on the, on the index. So altogether, if you want to uh, take into account the equity move plus the FX move, uh, you're looking at, let's say, minus 10% down year-to-date, which, to be honest given the usual volatility of, you know, Tehran Stock Exchange and the effects, is, um, is not that huge. So, um, you know, those types of moves um, can happen very easily, you know, within uh, any week.
1: Right. So on some level, yes, these are big moves. But in the grand scheme of things, for a market that's inherently volatile in a region that's very inherently volatile And uh, in a specific geopolitical context in which one sort of always expects potential escalation, your view is that it's not it wasn't that dramatic.
2: And also, you know, S&P already had a chance to react positively to Donald Trump's uh, press conference. And um, Iran is closed because Iran is trading from Saturday to Wednesday. So hmm. uh, today and tomorrow, it's, it's weekend in Iran.
1: Quick note so that people listening to this uh, were recording it uh, Thursday, January 9th. Just something to bear in mind so that when uh, people finally, when they get around to listening to it next week, they're aware of when this conversation took place.
0: So what's the best case scenario at this point? I guess what's the best case realistic scenario? Like how in your world would you like events between Iran and and the U.S. to unfold from here?
2: I think that um, the events from this week were actually quite significant and potentially very positive. Because look, so the U.S. assassinated the Iranian general. Iran had to respond. And it was a very significant response because for the first time they fired missiles at the U.S. Uh, military bases. So you don't need anything else to start a war. So if, if people wanted to go to a proper military conflict, I mean, that was it, right? They could go into uh, all-out confrontation. And this was a situation where I think the extreme outcomes became more likely. So either we have like a proper military confrontation or things actually improve from here. And perhaps you could have like a diplomatic reopening. We've been investing in Iran as long as Donald Trump is president of the United States. So I got used to seeing, you know, the relations between the countries getting worse and worse each quarter. So that's that's my main environment in in which i've been operating and actually after trump's press conference which i don't think was just neutral and like you know oof we managed to avoid um, the confrontation this time no i think it had a lot of positive signals talking about um, working together with iran on anything like you know fighting isis and and some with some some common targets or you know sending a signal that The the U.S. is open to uh, peace with any nation that is looking for it, Um, and so on and so on. It had a lot of positive signals. And um, given that both countries actually went through a very difficult test, I mean, with with those situations, and they passed it, I mean, there is no, like, you know, tension, it's actually de-escalation this could be a major de-escalation going forward. I don't know about, you know, restarting negotiations and so on. This could take a lot of time. I don't know if it's going to happen or or, or when. But what I think is that actually we may have seen a low point in relations between uh, Iran and the U.S. And it's also happening for the relations between Iran and Arab countries, like Saudi Arabia or UAE. Over the last six months, you had Plenty of positive signals where those countries started, um, you know, talking to each other and also decreasing the level of uh, tensions. So, you know, b- b- being cautiously optimistic, but this could shape as um, potentially the best ge- geopolitically speaking, the best year for Iran since you know 2016. And when when you're asking me about the best best case scenario, long term, this is the proper integration of Iran with international financial markets, so mainly the banking system. And this will only happen when the sanctions are off. So Iran and the U.S. make some sort of a deal. When this happens and the foreign capital starts flowing in, Iran, you know, Iran gets to MSCI frontier markets with, you know, 30% of the index or goes straight to MSCI emerging markets, you have $10 billion passive inflow overnight to the local stock market, you're going to see a bubble there. You know, the same same type of reaction where uh, foreign investors started investing in Russia in the 90s, you know, China, when it was opening up to foreign investors, Eastern Europe, or, you know, Pakistan in the early 2000s. And all those places weren't really nice places when they experienced massive bubbles, right? Russia was corrupted. China was still under sanctions after Tiananmen Square. You know, in Pakistan, someone was blowing himself up every second day, and there was a huge bull market going on. And what what was actually similar for all those markets was that they started from very low valuations. And this is exactly how it is in Iran right now. So this is my very optimistic scenario, long-term at some point. Um, in the meantime, it looks as if geopolitics could stop being a massive headwind, maybe not a tailwind here, but n- not a headwind anymore. And what we see at the end of the day, we look at, you know, bottom-up, like m- micro-level numbers. We see the continuation of earnings growth and many drivers for, you know, those, um, stock prices to continue
1: going higher.
0: Majit Wojtel, thank you so much for being with Joe and myself. Really interesting discussion.
1: Thank you very much. Yeah, that was fascinating. Thank you.
0: So, Joe... I found that conversation really interesting. Uh, I probably still wouldn't invest in Iranian stocks for a variety of reasons, not least of which uh, the fact that I am a U.S. citizen. But one thing that's really interesting is, you know, we talk a lot about emerging markets. We talk a lot about frontier markets and the notion that we're sort of seeing a, a vanishing of these frontier markets. A lot of them are getting upgraded to EM status as their respective eco- economies develop. Yeah. And here you have, you know, a pretty big country, 83 million people, Machi said, um, lots of resources, uh, and, and it's not even on many people's radar in terms of investing.
1: No, it's literally not on the radar because various data services can't even, for legal reasons, carry data. But, you know, something that I thought a lot about during that conversation is there is this notion in finance that there is some sort of positive correlation between risk and reward. So you take more risk and you get more reward. It's not actually that simple and it's not actually true so, for example, emerging markets in general are perceived as riskier than U.S. markets, but they've underperformed for the last decade, basically. Small caps are ostensibly riskier than large caps, and in theory there should be uh, more money in them, but in fact, um, you do- they haven't actually done that well. The missing piece and why it doesn't work is because what actually gives you a reward is not just risk per se, but it's sort of like, gumption and moxie and going out and acquiring information that is too costly for others to do. And so when you listen to uh, Maciej talking about investing in Iran, it's not just that Iran is, to me, it's not just that Iran is risky. It's like the legal compliance in uh, the lawyer in DC explaining how the sanctions work, the figuring out of the banks and which banks can actually still transfer money with which banks in Europe. The work going to his limited partners in Europe and convincing them that that Iran is worth investing in, and when you think about the amount of like legwork that just that it takes to invest in Iran, then you could start to understand why there may be, in theory, true profit opportunities. Yeah,
0: I mean, it takes extra effort. Uh, that's for sure. I, I, yeah, you know, in some respects, it takes access uh, in in many ways as well. In in, in the sense yeah. that some people just cannot touch that market and well, others like, can with a lot of work, as as you point out.
1: Yeah. Like, so, for example, if I wanted to invest in Brazil right now, I could just log into my brokerage account and I could type in the ticker for the Brazil ETF and it would be as easy with literally no extra effort than, uh, you know, investing in the S&P 500 It's just changing the three or four letters that I would type in my keyboard. It's obviously a totally different story when just the mere access to the market is so much more cumbersome and complicated. Yeah.
0: You know what I really want to see? That Iranian Bloomberg-esque data service. I'm really yeah. curious about that one.
1: <laughs> I know. I'm going to go check that out right after we're We're going to
0: have to look it up. This has been another edition of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway.
1: And I'm Jill Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And you should follow our guest, Machie Voitel on Twitter. His handle is at M-W-O-J-T-A-L. So uh, check his stuff out there. And be sure to follow our producer on Twitter, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. Follow all the Bloomberg podcasts on Twitter at podcasts. And follow the Bloomberg head of podcasts, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. Thanks for listening.